Welcome to another episode of Visitings, where we talk to artists who are engaged with the public outside the traditional exhibition space. My name is Alan Nakagawa, and I'll be your host. Earthworks, or land art, a genre of art that is often massive in scale and always in nature. One of the icons of this movement, which started in the late 60s, early 70s, is Spiral Jetty by the late uh, Robert Smithson. One of the folks at the vanguard of scholarly study of Spiral Jetty is historian Hikmet Lowe. In the week her book Spiral Jetty Encyclo was published in September 2017, I was lucky enough to sit down with her in her home in Salt Lake City, Utah, and record a moment of her thoughts on what seemed to be uh, a transition period, a moment of transition, I guess, between decades of research and this landmark book. Uh, so usually what I do is I ask, uh, you know, for you to state your name and okay. your title, whatever you think your title should be. Oh. Which title would you like to use? I think I would like to be an art historian. How's that? Yes. Hikmet Lowe, art historian. Hey. Hey. <laughs> It's all good. Yeah, we're saying that because Hickman has many hats. <laughs> yes, that's yes. true. Okay. Or Hickman Lowe, art historian, writer, curator, educator. Awesome. Excellent. So thank you for sitting down at this beautiful table well, thank in you. Salt Lake City. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you on Visitings. Thank you. Um, where should we start? Should we let's dive into the most recent? So you finished your book. <laughs> you know, I actually finished my book a couple years ago, but okay. then well, it's interesting because it's really not done until it's done. And this is the first book I've done and I I didn't know all of the mechanics that went into it. So I quit writing two years ago, but you know, maybe there were some updates last year. And there was a friend of mine suggested adding an encyclopedic entry that she thought was really important, and she was right. And so I went ahead and I added that in. Um, and then the last year has been a lot of sort of checks and cleanups and working with the press and looking at proofs and going through processes that were totally foreign to me so that by the time I got an email, and it wasn't a phone call, it was an email saying, We've got one copy of the book that we will give to you right now. I literally walked out of a meeting I was in at work and <laughs> drove to the press, which luckily is 10 minutes away from me. And there she was standing there with my book, ready to just pass it on to me. It was wow. it, the most, one of the most surreal moments I've ever had. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I know. Thanks. Long um, time coming. Long time coming. Yeah. And you're just at the start of that journey. That was just a week and a half ago. And so, yeah, it's <laughs> it's different. I'm, I'm trying to get used to life, uh, maybe BB before the book, and now AB after the book, and, right. and now having it in my hands because it's this tangible object that's in the world. Mm. 
On my first trip to Salt Lake City, we had lunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and I think we had lunch the day after you went to Spiral Jetty. Is that true? No, I oh, hadn't no, gone. Oh, no, that's I, right. I, I you hadn't it. gone. We had lunch, and then I had to go to work, and you had right. to go to Spiral Jetty. Right. How, right. So how was it? Tell me um, about your trip. So I, I, I heard bits and pieces of stories from other people who had visited. So I, I had things in my mind. But the things that... Um, that jump out at me is that it's close to where the railroads, uh, the the east and west mm-hmm. built uh, building of the construction of the cross continental, the, tr- the transcontinental, transcontinental railroad, yeah, transcontinental yeah. railroad. So I guess there was a Golden Spike, or they called it Golden Spike. Right, Leland Stanford and and the infamous Golden Spike, which is now you know at Stanford University in California. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So th- that's that's a good marker if you start feeling you're lost or uh-huh. your GPS is playing tricks on uh-huh. you. And then uh, there's this sort of, and then once you pass that, then it felt like you're in a very rural kind of area. You're actually driving in somewhat maybe dirt roads at some mm. point. And oh, yeah. And railroad at some point, I yes. remember, and some bridges. And, it, and then there's cows everywhere. Oh, yeah. You're driving through where there are cows. Yeah. And then there's that beautiful point where it just, now you feel like, oh, there's the coast. And then you make that turn, and there it is. Yeah. For like a brief moment. Yeah. And then you go back inland, I guess, and you can't see it. And that's amazing, that moment. Because... Because uh, I, w- I think I went with a friend. Mm-hmm. I and, think there was a friend or two neither, at lunch. Yeah, neither of us, none, none of us had ever been there before. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, you know, easily we thought we were lost. Mm-hmm. Like we were in the wrong place. Yeah. Like surely there'd be a monument that said Spiral Jetty. Exactly. You know, 2.1 and miles or Big whatever. neon lights. Yeah, big and, neon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's much more subtle than that. The, the first time I ever went out there, it was 1996. I had tried getting out there starting in 1995. And so the very, very first time, I end up at a military base with a big, huge fence in front of me oh. with the skeleton of an entire cow right there on the side of the road with this military fence in front of me. This was 1995, and I thought, wow, what if I actually had instructions? Because I I was clueless. I, it was like, well, the lake is right there, and I can just you know go around the edge of the lake and find it. Right. Okay, the lake is huge. It's 75 miles long. On what planet did I think 75 miles in one afternoon was I could navigate that right. to be able to find it? So I finally get out to Roselle Point in 1996, but it's underwater. There's nothing. I, it's not visible. Nothing. And so I went to the place where I knew that it was and celebrated that I got there. And it was so much fun. There was nobody. It was me, my dog, Duna, just in my you know Honda wagon that I had at the time. And it was this beautiful day. And I think it was March. It was really nice and warm and sunny. And then I went back and I had all these flat tires. the roads were a little rough in those days right yeah and i had an old car but it was a great trip how did you get out of that um uh, by the time i had the flats i was on you know i was like in in regular population again on a road so i just went to a gas station and they had to fix me up yikes yeah but it was fun it was it was an adventure it was this uncharted territory i'd never 
been by myself to try to find a work of art outside in a lake. I had a cell phone that was the size of maybe three cell phones or four cell phones now because it's 96, right? They're like these big Solvay block sort of things. And it didn't work out there. You can't get reception out there even now with Verizon. It doesn't work. Um, so it, it was fun. I don't remember anything from that trip other than it was just this wonderful experience. And I didn't even see the work of art. It was great. Or you did. Or I did, and maybe it was just the journey that was the work of art. Right. Yeah. But underwater, it's still the spiral chain. It's still this. It yeah. is still its essence, even if it's underwater. You're right. Because for me, what year was that? 1996. It was a long time ago. So in 96, uh, in my circle of public art administrators, uh -huh. we were talking about the spiral jetty and how it was underwater. Yeah. But none. I'm pretty sure none of us had got to see it underwater. You did. Right. That is a point of history in its right. so lifetime. I had lived in Utah, and when I came back again at, in late 94, mm -hmm. 95, I connected again with friends of mine, and all they talked about was Spiral Jetty because it became visible in 93. And it wasn't like the sort of nationally known fact that Spiral Jetty was visible again because it was underwater for so long. Record of that. So it's funny that you should mention Paul Clay. Yeah. Because the, the word that we were talking about earlier today was phenomenology. Yes. And in my mind, in terms of contemporary art, that's kind of where that starts, is with those primitive artists, isn't it? Oh, that's interesting. To some degree. Well, I think, no? I think it starts before he is a little after Cézanne. And I, th hmm. I think, and so we were just touching on some of the phenomenologists, the different okay. philosophers. Mm -hmm. So the French philosopher Merleau-Ponty wrote a lot about the art of Paul Cézanne. And, and he ends up writing this very famous, well, famous to who? To, you know, 20 people on the planet or something. But I, I very much admire and uh, really relish uh, Cézanne's work because of the, the tie into phenomenology. Um, this, um, so Merleau-Ponty then is sort of referencing Cézanne all the time, who's really struggling with making sure that he can accurately depict what he sees in front of him, this hidden order of nature. Mm -hmm. And he can see that nature and he can embody it on a flat surface because Cezanne is one of those artists who starts to uh, fully acknowledge, I'm just, it's just paint, it's a flat canvas, mm -hmm. but how am I showing three dimensions? How am I showing the phenomenology, that, that existence, that being that I am, in nature and in space, mm -hmm. how am I showing my relationship to all of that as I'm painting this mountain here in front of me in my village? Um, what was pretty incredible from that time period is that that's when I first met Bob Phillips, who was the construction foreman 
on creating the spiral jetty. And so I went to his house, I interviewed him, I had a tape recorder that's certainly not as fancy as the one that you've got here. Um, and he showed me everything. He showed me original drawings he had and photographs and construction photographs. And so I did a formal interview with him to talk about actually the building of Spiral Jetty. Nobody had considered that. Nobody had ever talked to somebody in that part because we've got these earthworks and it's not the artists themselves going out there with a shovel, right? Or a backhoe. They are hiring people to, to do this incredible amount of physical work for them to their specifications. Was he a local Oh yeah, person? yeah, absolutely local person. And so I actually dedicate my book to Bob Phillips. Um, Bob Phillips, master builder, who said no when told to, who said yes when told to say no. That's <laughs> that is my dedication to him in the book, because um, when Bob Phillips went to his boss and said, "There's this artist guy from New York, and he wants me to do this thing," his boss said, "Nope, you're not going to do that," and he went ahead and did it anyway. Wow. And that's that? and how about that? That's that's pretty phenomenal. There's, Does he tell you why? Uh, he just he saw something in Smithson. He thought it would be fun. He thought it would be a challenge. You know, at first he was a little think sort of wary of Robert Smithson. Here's somebody from the East Coast with this sort of shock of dark hair and these piercing eyes and wearing a leather jacket. And this is the '70s, right? It's 1970, and they they hit it off. They were, you know, they ended up becoming close, and it was great. But then Bob Phillips was a great guy, mm -hmm. so it was pretty easy to hit it off and become close to him. Uh, interestingly, then, because I had worked with Nancy Holt on my thesis and gotten to know her in a very professional manner, because she would vet works, certainly uh, master's level work on Smithson. She would vet on a certain level if it was PhD a PhD publication, which then maybe meant that it was going to be published as a book. She would work with people on a different kind of a level. So I got to know her, uh, and she was very, and I said this recently to somebody, she was very generous to both scholars and friends because she really facilitated and helped to share information, share knowledge. Um, it's then getting to know her. I mean, I started getting to know her in 1996, knew her all the way up until her passing. And it was amazing to see an artist both creating and producing her own work at the same time continuing her husband's legacy and doing that for decades, kind of having that existence that was both. So, but it did take a long time. You know, the book then becomes a book chapter in a book on Great Salt Lake uh, put out by the Department of Natural Resources. And it was around that time, I think, where I started giving lectures. So I start lecturing and then I start writing other articles, uh, an article that I did a lot of research on. I end up calling the double world, which is a phrase from Robert Smithson. And I wrote it for the online publication 15 Bytes, which is a very clever term. It's B-Y-T-E-S. It's Utah's online art magazine. So I've been writing for them since 2008. 
and I wrote this essay called The Double World, which goes into detail on the, not the building of Spiral Jetty, but the getting the lease and who did he work with and then he dies, and the lease is then in Nancy Holt's name. And then in 1999, that lease is transferred because uh, Spiral Jetty is given to Dio Art Foundation as a gift from the estate of Robert Smithson and Nancy Holt. And I go through all of this detail, and the double world ends up being, we think about earthworks as these places to go to and visit and have a kind of experience that we either anticipate or have no knowledge of related to being with art, right? But this long legacy with Spiral Jetty of who has owned it, where the leases sit, what the land is, who owns the land out there. It's very complicated and, and fascinating. It was, you know, what I found with all of this research on Spiral Jetty is sometimes I would just go into a rabbit hole and not come out. And it's an encyclopedia. Encyclo. It is. It's it called is. the Spiral Jetty Encyclo. Well, it's this great story. I love this story. Um, acad- in academia, in academic publishing, one needs to go through a series of steps. It's not like I had a manuscript and I gave it to these folks at the University of Utah Press and they said, it's perfect as is. We're just going to publish this next week, right? I mean, this took years. And so years ago, I had a book that was seven chapters and that was presented as a manuscript for review to a Robert Smith, anonymous, of course, Robert Smithson scholar. Should this be published? And that scholar said, yes, but, and, and here are the reasons why. But there, the writer, that would be me, seems to be having a hard time maintaining a narrative through this arc of traditional writing, which was absolutely true. I'd, again, I'd never done this before. And it was very hard for me to try to determine what's that entree point? What is that starting point in having a discussion about Spiral Jetty? Do you say Robert Smithson was born in Passaic, New Jersey? <laughs> Spiral Jetty was built in April 1970. I mean, what? how do you enter into something that is kind of so monumental, both in size, but also in our collective conscience as, as this iconic work of 20th century art? How does one get in there? And so this anonymous scholar gave me the gift. And, and this, I, of course, will never forget this because this made the book and said, I'm going to make a radical suggestion for a rewrite. What if you turned your content into an encyclopedia. What if you, because what I had done through these seven chapters, which chronologically went through seven spans of time in order, so deep time, his interest in deep time and geology up to, and then there's a chapter on building the jetty and then consequences and afterwards. What if you took all that information and broke it down and put it in encyclopedic format because that would get rid of duplicates because I had, an, and my famous example of that is Captain Howard Stansbury was in charge of the 1850 expedition where they triangulated Great Salt Lake and they map everything out and they learn a lot and they talk about being out at Roselle. They have all these experiences out there. 
And so because of that, I mean, I, I do deep research on for this book for years. It just keeps going and going. And so I find out all this information about Roselle through this experience of this team um, under this under Stansbury, the captain. And, and he's all through the book when it was seven chapters. Like, there's Stansbury talking about this and Stansbury talking about that. So I was able to, once I wrapped my head around the fact that it was an encyclopedia, and that took eight months mm -hmm. for me to say, oh, my God, this person who's anonymous to me is totally right. It took two years to rewrite the book. It, it literally took two years to break down what I had and sort it into these topics but then what is what did that mean like how how did the book then have meaning and the way the book ended up <clears throat> then having meaning is to be able to say well this entry on phenomenology comes from his essay because he talks about phenomenology and the sun and salt and crystals and this and that. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it was right there. The roadmap was always right there. It was Robert Smithson. It's his essay that he wrote in 1972 called The Spiral Jetty. Mm -hmm. It was a transcription of the film Spiral Jetty that he had done in 1970. And so Serge Paul, who's an art historian in France, did that transcription and generously gave me that for the book. And then I did a transcription of the film Mona Lake that came out in 2004 because I was stunned when Nancy Holt finished that film to see that all the work that... Nancy Holt, Robert Smithson, and Michael Heiser did together over a couple weeks in Nevada and California in 1968. That was the template and precursor for Smithson to move into Spiral Jetty two years later. My eyes became combustion chambers, churning orbs of blood blazing by the light of the sun. And the attribution is the Spiral Jetty, the essay. So each of these entries then starts with a quote by Smithson and ties into Smithson right back again through what he did, what his interest was, what his history was, other artists who maybe had influenced him. In the section of Eyes, he references Jackson Pollock's 1946 painting, Eyes in the Heat. He does that in his essays, so of course then I've got a reproduction of that here in this book. So all of these entries are about Smithson in a new format, and at the end of the entries, we have see also references mm. because it's an encyclopedia and I used to be a librarian. <music> Gave to me because that idea was so important to Robert Smithson where he broke down so many barriers. An art magazine could be a work of art. A film could be a work of art. All of these different things, this, these ideas, rocks in a lake could be a work of art. And none of it to him was hierarchical. There wasn't anything that said, okay, if you make a work out of rocks, that's more important than a work that's words in a magazine. He didn't have those distinctions. And so by taking all that and breaking it down and putting it in this format, it follows in Smithson's aesthetic. Wow. Yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah. It's a great idea and it's not mine and I'm happy to attribute it to my anonymous reader. <laughs>
So he was a pluralistic phenomenologist. Absolutely. He was a polymath. It was, it was all, yeah, abs- it's really. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. It's, he was really pretty incredible. I'm still learning about phenomenology. Can you can you tell me what what is your takeoff phenomenon? What does that mean? Well, so if we're talking about it within the scope of Robert Smithson, mm-hmm. um, he does talk about phenomenology in his essay. Uh, he he hints to that, and so I have that word, um, and the word that he uses pheno- is phenomenologically. So I include that word as an encyclopedic entry in. Basically, um, there's a very brief history that I gave. It's certainly not the whole history of phenomenology. Uh, But there was a German philosopher, uh, Husserl, who then started to um, discuss these ideas of space and matter, this understanding of space and matter. And one of the people who was studying Husserl is a French philosopher, Merleau-Ponty who kind of took that a step further, thinking about the body. What is the body and our body's um, experience within space? How is it that we understand space around us and what is taking place through our body and our senses? How are we basically perceiving? And I have been very much influenced by reading Merleau-Ponty and understanding um, or or hopefully starting to understand the ideas that he was very much interested in because it is and what makes I think land art so fascinating is that we are outside and we are in environments that sometimes maybe are considered harsh but they're also very interesting to be in but these experiences that we have uh, it, it's something that Robert Smithson had written about, which is every 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 experience every day at the Spiral Jetty is totally different. He wanted an environment that was changeable. Mm-hmm. He wanted his work to be in that kind of place, and he's literally leading us into this path of phenomenology. <clears throat> Excuse me, of understanding that we have the flicker of light the way that things change, our, our senses, our perception, our seeing, literally informs the world around us. And you know what? We're all different. So we're all literally having these different experiences. And so he uses those philosophical ideas in talking about Central Park and what had been established there. So it wasn't certainly Spiral Jetty and when he writes his essay and he's referencing different artists, that's not the first time that he does that. Unfortunately, the the essay on Central Park that he publishes in 73 was the last time because then a couple months later he's he's died. So. Right. He died in a plane crash. He did. Uh, surveying the site in Texas at Amarillo f- to build Amarillo Ramp. And so a couple weeks after he died in that plane crash, uh, Nancy hauled his wife and two friends, Richard, Sarah, and Tony Shafrazi, go to the site and they end up building Amarillo Ramp to his specifications. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It, it's amazing. And then that got turned into a film that Nancy was able to complete before her own passing, The Making of Amarillo Ramp, where there's, and, and it's very poignant. It's, it's very personal, right? There are pictures of Robert Smithson, and they're literally a day or two before he's died. And then, you know, and there's information in this about what has happened and then showing the construction of it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing film. The value of earthworks. Oh, that's so fascinating. What, what are we talking about? Are we talking about aesthetic beauty, the value to the soul? Are we talking about money? What kind of value are we talking about? Which value interests you the most? Oh, I think um, I'm, I'm in the camp of phenomenology. I'm, I'm all about the value of the experience and how art can be that visual trigger, that visual language, that, that, vis- that space that I can enter into to make me see things literally differently. To me, that is extremely valuable. Yeah, I'm, I'm not interested. Other, other people can be interested in, in value as far as money is concerned. Sure. For me, it's, it's all about having that experience. That concludes another episode of Visitings. Thank you to Hikmet Lowe for being on the show. Thanks as always to the Echo Park Film Center, Machine Projects, and Dub Lab for letting me share this. I'm Alan Nakagawa, sitting in my living room in Koreatown, saying thank you for listening to Visitings.